Malachi or as is infamously known Malachi the Italian prophet um, hey we had a good time at breakfast this morning and if you missed it you missed it and um, how's that for deep stuff um, and so appreciate they had some really good egg muffins Appreciate that, Connie. Had some really good other blueberry muffins and casseroles, and there's probably some leftovers if you'd like to head down that way. That uh, afterward, 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 afterward. Uh, appreciate all that. Um, so we are at a new year, and um, we spent most of Christmas in the first chapter of Matthew. So if in your Bible, if you don't have something in between, if you just went to the left a little bit. You would be in the Old Testament, and the last book of the Old Testament is this minor prophet named Malachi. So we're going to um, be looking at Malachi today and for the rest of this month. Um, And our plan is to be in Malachi for January, the last Sunday in January, Lord willing. Uh, Adam will be preaching that Sunday. And then we're looking at, in February, doing a, a topical series on marriage in the home. Uh, and then jumping into a New Testament book after that. And so um, there are six disputations or arguments in Malachi, and so we're going to do two today, two next Sunday, and two the Sunday after that, and com- conclude the book of Malachi, Lord willing, and, um, and that's, our, that's our plan. So Malachi chapter 1, I hope you found it. I'm going to go ahead and read the first chapter. Excuse me. (laughs) Malachi chapter one, follow along um, and we will um, jump in here together. This is God's word. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest, you have despised my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? When you offer up those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. But with but such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. 
I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness is this? You snorted it and say, says the Lord of hosts, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. This you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Curse be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices it to the Lord that is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us as we receive this prophecy? Lord, would we be reminded of your love for us and respond to that love and that grace in the worship that would be pleasing to you? God, I thank you for the promise of your spirit and ask for his help. And Lord, we anticipate you using this to change us. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want you to imagine a scenario with me that you come upon a group of people who have, um, are, are staying in a tent and it's cold. It's this time of year. And they've been heating with a propane heater. And you walk into the tent, and the propane gases have been around, and they're still alive, but they're very sleepy, very drowsy. And you walk into that tent, you smell the gas, you see them, they're kind of lethargic. What would you do? How would they respond? Now, I want you to imagine that scenario. You've walked into that tent, and the propane's been heating. The people are sleepy. They're still alive. And that's the situation that Malachi is. There's a group of people, God's people, Israel. They've come back into the land. They've been there for probably 80 years. Um, they, the, the temple's been rebuilt. They've had all those things going on, and they've just gotten lethargic and lazy, and sleepy, and they've kind of, they're, they're, they're ready to go, to go extinct. <clears throat> now, so when Malachi comes in, so if you walked into that tent, what, what would you do? You'd probably want to op- open the vent, you know, uh, open up the, the, you know, take the zipper, open it up, get some fresh air in there, and as that happens, someone's going to be like, whoa, 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 it, it's cold, we were nice and warm, I'm tired, but you're like, no, 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 this is what you need. Like, you, you're going to die of asphyxiation here if you don't get some fresh air in here. And Yeah, I know it's cold, but it's better than death, right? But they're mad at the person, right? They're like, why are you opening this up? We were so happy in here. Why are you making it so cold and chill and harsh? Um, and that's really what you're walking into when you walk into the book of Malachi. Here's a pressured man, as one commentator said, a pressured man pressuring a casual people to feel the weight of truth. 
a pressured man pressuring a casual people, and that's what Malachi is. And so um, I thought this would be a great book for us as we begin the new year, because there's a lot of things as we look at the new, a, a, a new year that we need to be reminded of, that we get so casual and just kind of going through the motions and just kind of going with the flow, uh, kind of on autopilot, um, that uh, Malachi really confronts. This is the um, bridge book of the Testaments uh, mentioned earlier. From the time that Malachi ends this book until Matthew picks up his pen are 400 years of silence, nothing. Um, this is really the capstone prophecy of the Old Testament. Mention it's a minor prophet. That doesn't mean he's under age or he's not important. Uh, it means that he's lesser in, in knowledge than the major prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. But they're still, uh, he's still prophesying. A lot of the minor prophets are prophesying at the same time as other major prophets. And so a little bit of the setting going on here. So this is a message of judgment for the continued sin that, that Israel's in. But it also gives, and we'll see as we get here in the next couple of weeks, a promise of the day of the Lord. You hear that phrase a lot throughout the scripture, the day of the Lord uh, of the future. And he's also prophesying a messenger to come that I'm going to argue uh, is John the Baptist that going in there and that these fulfillment of these prophecies. So the name Malachi just means my messenger or the Lord's messenger. So that's what, so if someone's name is Malachi, uh, uh, our son had a, a friend on his soccer team named Malachi. It just means the messenger. And so my messenger, and that's what Malachi means. So the timing about of this is um, probably, I'm going to guess, and it seems like a lot of people lean on this, about a contemporary of what's going on in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so around maybe 445 BC, probably between 430, 450 BC, uh, kind of that mid fifth century BC. So, um, of course, you know the story, 586 B.C., uh, the temple's destroyed, they, they're marched off to Babylon. Zerubbabel brings back a group to the land. This would be around, I think I have it in my notes here, 516 B.C. And then you know the story of Ezra. Uh, Ezra comes back um, and sets up worship, and they rebuild, start rebuilding places of worship. This would be in the 548-ish B.C., and then Nehemiah comes, uh, 445 B.C., and they rebuild the walls. So there's some time that's gone here. So it's about this time that we know that um, uh, Nehemiah returns to Persia uh, and later comes back. Uh, and at the end of Nehemiah, he talks about how he needs to go back to confront sins in Israel that have crept up while he's been gone. And those sins sound very similar to what Malachi is talking about. So a lot of people try to put this in. So maybe when, when Nehemiah goes back to Persia for a while, that's when um, this is going on. And so, uh, and, and the reason for that, there's a few reasons to, to think inter- intrinsically uh, here uh, that it's at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. Verse 8, they talk about a governor. Uh, they also talked here in the first chapter about worshiping at a temple. So there's been a long time that they haven't had that. So it seems, okay, there's worship at a temple, so there has to be a temple, right? So, so it's probably after the temple's been rebuilt, so after Ezra. Um, so there's other things going on here. So um, there's the sacrifices there in, in chapter 1 and also in chapter 3 mentioned later on. There's similar issues that are addressed here as well as in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I mentioned that... Malachi addresses complacency 
amongst God's people. And a few areas that he talks about how they're complacent when it comes to ministry uh, and how they conduct ministry. We'll see a little bit of that today. They're complacent with how they uh, deal with their money, um, their, their, their offerings, their giving. They're also um, complacent with the way they see marriage and the way they treat marriage. Uh, and not taking it as, as, as precious and as important as God wants them to, and also with how they treat other people. So there's some of those same issues that are addressed in Malachi. There's four chapters, so you, uh, I want to encourage you to you know, read it a time or two during the next few weeks. It's a great book, and it only takes about 10 minutes to read it uh, out loud yourself. Um, and so, um, so some of the issues, he talks about marriage to foreign wives uh, that, uh, in chapter 2, Ezra talks about that, as well as Nehemiah, withholding free will offerings and tithes and contributions. He talks about that when we get to chapter 3. Nehemiah talks about that as well. He talks about some social injustice, some social justice issues here in Malachi, as well as the, uh, Nehemiah addressed. So um, the, the lot's going on here. And so I hope you'll, this, so these two themes of co- complacency and corruption that creep in. I hope will uh, learn much from this. So as they've been in Israel for a while, they start to question God's promises. So they came back to the land with these promises that God had made these promises in, in these covenants to Levi, to David, to Abraham, to Noah. And they're not, they come back to the land, they have this temple rebuilt, but they're not seeing these things happen. And they're getting just as corrupt as their ancestors that were deported into Babylon. And so you're seeing this new generation come along. It's kind of you see that cycle in people and churches and things. You know, we got this we, a resurgence of something or a new something or a replant or a new movement or a new organization. And then a few generations, a few decades go by. And the same corruption that you saw in the old guard is in the new guard. And you're seeing that happen with a new generation of Israelites. And so... Malachi steps into that tent and pulls it open and the the cold air comes in and he has six disputations. The first three exposes their corruption. Um, And and, and in doing so, I love this, he doesn't just get on them and like, you're wrong and you're this and you're that. Kind of, you know, sometimes we think that that these uh, prophets are all negative. But he comes with an affirming. God loves you. God's affirming his, his prophecy to Levi. I mean, he gets on these priests pretty hard, but then he's like, God is committed to that covenant with Levi. And God's committed to that covenant of marriage, and God's committed to this. And, and so he affirms covenant. Covenant is a huge thing in the Bible. Uh, God's covenant-keeping love, his love that he sets upon us. And then this fourth to the sixth disputation or argument he confronts the corruption that they have. And so I mentioned that they're complacent in marriage, money, and in ministry. And it actually sounds very similar to what you might read in the book of Revelation when John writes, but the Spirit says to the churches, this church, you're this way, this church, you're this way. It's kind of like a similar thing going on. So after being back in the land for a long time, maybe 80 years, they've just gotten into the religious rut, the routine. That led to hard-heartedness, uh, questioning God's love for them. So it's been about 2,000 years have passed since Abraham had been given this promise that from his seed uh, there would be more than the stars of the sea and from his seed uh, all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Messiah. 
but they haven't seen that happen yet. Well, why? Well, why, God? And, 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 and you could put ourselves in the same place because the church today is kind of in the same, you know, it's been about 2,000 years. Jesus said he's leaving. He's going to prepare a place. He's going to come again. Okay, we haven't seen that happen in God. What, where, well, you know, as Peter says, where's the promise of his coming? You know, um, you know what, what's going on here? And we might feel, and as we're in that same thing, we might say, okay, well, God, was the, did you really mean this? Do you really love us? Is your plan really there? We've been doing this for a while. We've been hoping you'd do a work here, and it hasn't seemed like that. And we're seeing corruption, and we're getting sleepy, and we go through the rut. So the first two of these, and at the end, chapter 4, there's kind of a little an appendix um, that, that bridges the Testaments, and I wanna, hopefully we'll have some time to talk about that as well. So the first one, in chapter 1, he starts off with this, an oracle, or the heart, the prophecy of the word of the Lord of Israel by Malachi, and he starts off with this, this statement here in this first disputation in verses 2 to 5. I have loved you says the Lord. He starts out affirming God's love for them. And all of these disputations kind of have a similar thing. The, the prophet makes a statement from God. The people throw back a question, often with an accusation. And then God comes back with the final word. So that's why it's called a disputation. So, so I've loved you. Well, how have you loved us? And then God comes back with an answer. And so um, we don't always see God's love. When circumstances, sometimes circumstances go a certain way and we question God's love. And so they do the same thing. Well, how have you loved us? And then God responds this way. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob and Esau have I hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. Basically what, God, what he's saying here is that, that there's a couple promises here that show God's love. First one is this, God's sovereign election. It's not Jacob, Esau's brother, but God chose the covenant, the blessing to come through Jacob. So how do you know God loves you? Are you saved? Have you believed on Christ? Are you one of his? Duh! You're you're the object of his affection. He loves you. He's chosen you to be part of his family. There's so many others that are not. He's chosen you to be part of that family. This should be an incredible encouragement to believers. And then how he takes care of him. How uh, he goes on in this, the rest of that, that section there about Edom, who's the descendants of Esau. Um, this is what's going on in the, the book of Obadiah. Uh, and also in um, Genesis, uh, I think, verses 23 to 25 to 27. Um, God shows his love this with this story of Esau and how Esau's, you know, they, they're down there in um, Edom. So this is kind of that the people are questioning God's love. God, do you still love us? I mean, we're not seeing these promises. We're not seeing, we're not seeing, we're seeing injustice. Our, our priests, our spiritual leaders aren't doing right. God, is your, is your hand still on this people? And God affirms this and saying, yes, how have you loved us? But then what, I love what God does here with this. He reverses the question. Well, God, have you loved us? And he's like, yes, I've loved you. And then he turns and says, 
how have you loved me? So God reverses the question here. And it's kind of like the story of the, um, I'm probably, I've probably told it before. There's the, uh, the older couple, and they're riding in the truck. And the wife is bemoaning the days when they used to sit so close in the cab of the truck. And how when they were dating, and you ever, you know, I remember back in the day when people were riding a pickup truck, you pull up behind them, and it looks like a two-headed monster behind the driver's seat. I mean, it's this sweet teenage couple, and they're driving their pickup truck, and they're just so close to one another. And then the years go by, and she's sitting over on the right-hand side, and she's bemoaning, how come we, we used to be so in love, and we used to sit side by side, and we used to cuddle in the truck and we blah 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 and he just in a nice uh, I told you so way looks at her and says I ain't moved I mean, he's behind the steering wheel he's been sitting in the same seat the whole time and that's a little bit what God's doing here he's kind of saying God how have you loved us and he's like I'm not the one that's moved here I'm keeping this covenant I've set my affection on you I'm loving you how have you loved me and then he turns it back on them So, you and I need to believe the love of God. The more we come to grips with the sovereignty of God and that he is involved and in charge of every event in our lives, we will start to often question whether he loves us or not. And there are certain truths we need to keep in mind of that at that time. Certain truths about the the cross, I mean, you, you, we just read one of those incredible passages that um, we can't get away from this love, that he set it on in, in Romans 8. That, I mean, the most convincing evidence of God's love for you is what Christ, I mean, if you're wondering whether God loves you or not, just look at the cross. I mean, he shows it. It's, in, it's an infinite cost. The Father gave his only Son, laid down his life for you. I mean, in your, not when you were like worthy of it, in your miserable condition, while we were yet sinners. You're dead. You were an object of his wrath, and he died for you. So when we begin to question God's love, we need to remember that we have absolutely no claim to that love, and we run to the cross. And anytime you're tempted to doubt whether God loves you or not, go to the cross. Look at the cross. If God loved you and me enough to send his son to die on the, for my sins, then he loves me enough to care for the situation that I'm in right now, that our church is in right now, that our nation is in right now. He loves us. And so we need to remember that. We can also be reminded of God's family love for us. I mean, over and over in the New Testament, he says, Dearly beloved. I love how Matthew Henry said it. He said, the great God not only loves his saints, but he loves to love them. I mean, he loves to love us. He has a fatherly love for us. I mean, and then his, 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 he has a great love for us in Christ. We talked a little bit about this last week with those resolutions and God's glory. And sometimes we might be thinking like, well, man, if it's all about God and it's all about his glory and it's all about Christ and Christ being supreme, well, how does that let me fit in? And that's where the beautiful picture of union with Christ comes in. That the term in Christ, united in him. So we're the vine. We're united with Christ. We're connected with him. So when we grasp that idea that God's love for us is in Christ, 
then we're never going to have a problem with Christ being preeminent because we are in him. And that's where, when we baptize one, we recognize that one comes into the body. When we celebrate the Lord's table or recognizing that the many become one in the body, we are in him. We're reminding ourselves that we are in Christ. We, so this whole I need to love myself mentality, that's not going to get you anywhere. You're going to be so discouraged with that. You're going to come up empty with that mentality. You need to love Christ. He does not look at us as standalone Christians. Even the good works of Christians. He looks at us as his bride. He looks at us in Christ. God's love to us cannot fail any more than the love that God has for Christ himself. So we are united with him. And he has a sovereign love that he's put on us. Um, God's glory for himself is not in conflict with his love for us. We're in him. And this is a huge thing. Christ reigns over everything. And we are in him. And therefore know that God loves us. So um, that's the first argument. That he, he gives this, that God loves them and he reminds them of that. And, the, and even in this, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God's going to get renowned, and he has a passion for his glory among the nations. And so look at Calvary. Look at your union with Christ. Look at the sovereignty of God's love for you, and remember that God loves you. God's love is truth. It can't be changed. It's always there. He loves you. He hasn't moved. So when you're tempted to question whether God loves you or not, remember these things. And then he moves on in the second disputation, second argument here, in verse 6. He goes after the priests and the people for the way they've responded to and treated God's worship. So they've been back in the land about 80 years, right? They've been there and they've kind of, as time goes by, kind of get in the routine, and maybe you're like that with your worship to God. Um, just kind of going through the motions. And so they just kind of got con- what was convenient, maybe what was selfish a little bit, what worked for them, um, not given the best convenience. Jesus went after this, didn't he? When he um, turned over the money changers in the temple. Um, and really what they were doing was just, I mean, they needed, I mean, God, they were obeying God's law. God had a certain like Hebrew currency that he wanted uh, to be paid for these sacrifices. So when you got all these Hellenist Jews coming, I mean, you got to change the money out somehow, right? So where's the best place to put the uh, kiosk machine, right? I mean, let's just put it right when they're coming in. I mean, it's convenient. That's the most convenient place for it. But they picked a place where Jesus said, this is not what my house is supposed to be. And so he turns over these money changers. And they were just doing what was convenient. And so just like the Israelites in the temple, we tend to make church uh, something other than what God intended for it to be. We, we get whatever's suitable, what's comfortable. And so he reminds them here, he's like, he goes after them. Uh, how have we despised your name in verse 6? And he says, by offering polluted food on my altar. Polluted food. By saying that the Lord's table may despise, we're offering blind animals in sacrifice. Is it not evil? Then he says, would you give your governors this? Would you do this for other people? 
I mean, I mean, some of you tip your waitresses whether, better than you, than, you, than you give to the Lord's work. I mean, what, why, what, why would you, you wouldn't do this to anybody else, but somehow you do this to God. And then God actually goes so far here in the prophecy to say, I wish somebody would come in and close the thing down in verse 10. I have no pleasure in this. I accept an offering this. That, that I, I would that someone would close the door, shut the doors that you may not kindle the fire of my altar. He'd rather the church be closed than for people to just worship him in vain and worship him going through the motions. That's an incredible indictment. Worship is important. The way we worship is important. It reveals what we think about God. And this is really what the heart of all this is. That the, so having like a dry ritual shows what we think in a way maybe that God's dead or some type of joyless performance or something like that. Now, of course, there's kind of an argument that goes both ways of like, well, if I don't feel it, should I still like fake it till I make it or something like that? And there's 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 an argument to, hey, just do what you know you're supposed to do and let the feelings come. But while you're doing it, praying that the feelings come or God, what's going on in my heart that this isn't happening? There's there's some obedience factors there. Sometimes that's one of the reasons I like some routine in worship that there's like, okay, I, I, I know what to expect. I'm new there and I know... I know I need to be part of the word. I know God wants the word to be part of the service. I know he wants me to be singing in it. So there's certain things I, I know that's important. But at the same time that I'm trying to make it, it needs to be fresh. It can't just be going through the, the motions of it. So um, how's your worship going? Have you been giving God your best? You know, they, they, they gave you know, lame animals in sacrifice. They're supposed to be given their best. They're, they're giving polluted food or blighted food. They're supposed to be given their best. And God knows this. So I ask, have you been giving God your best? Is he really getting first place? Or does he get leftovers? You know, it used to be popular, um, you know, the, when you'd have a lot of missionaries coming through, you'd have like a pantry or um, something like that, you know. And it was, it was kind of an indictment on, on folks. And I know, you know, you can't look a gift horse in the mouth. We really need something, whatever. But there are some things that people would send to missionaries that they would never have in their own house. You know what I mean? Like, we'll send the used tea bags to the missionaries, you know. Um, hey, I'm not using this anymore, you know. I'll donate it, you know. Um, and that comes to, to so many different levels. I mean, I mean, granted, you need to, you know, you don't need to have the best of everything. There's a difference there. But, but there's a mentality, you know, um, that God gets first place. And, and you can extend that to even, like, the people of God. And, of course, with them, it was the temple and the disrepair that the temple was in. You could extend that to the, 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 our family and how we work together and, and how we're caring for one another. You can tell a lot about, you know, you can tell a lot about someone by, like, how they take care of their house, how they take care of their car, whether they wash their car. I'm not saying it makes you more godly or anything, but you, there's just something about that, you know? Uh, when you're dating a girl uh, or you're taking your wife out to dinner, you know, you, you, you know, you at least put a hat on or, you know, put some, something that smells decent on, you know, rub some bacon on your chin or whatever, you know? Um, some, you know uh, what? Bacon smells great, right? <laughs> Um, my grandfather, um, he's in heaven now, um, his little church between Flemington and Philippi, um, he was the deacon, the trustee, the building and grounds committee. It was a little church, but he was like so faithful. And, uh, 
he had a rotation of how often he painted his house. Uh, I think it was like a five year, every five years he painted his house. And he, and that was one, it was a way to keep us on a schedule. The other was a way to say that God has first place. So he, the summer he would paint his house, he would also go paint the church first. He would go paint the church building, then he'd paint his own house. So it was, it was, there was a practical reason, but there was also a spiritual reason. And, and, and that was just him showing God's first. I'm going I'm to do this before my own. But you know what most of us might do? And what I do sometimes is like, hey, I got done painting this room in my house, and I got a half gallon left that I'm going to have to throw out. Think they need that for that one room at the church, right? That's kind of how we treat it, right? Um, um, oh, I got this grade paint for my house, but, you know, oh, man, you get that cheap stuff. We'll use that at the church, right, you know? And, um, and I'm not saying the church building's the temple. I'm not trying to do anything like that, but I'm trying to just get at a mentality that God should get the best. God should get our first. Um, does God get that you have a leftover mentality towards your worship of God. And I think a lot of Americans have that. Um, And we wouldn't go out and say it, but it really works out that way. It shows up in our worship attendance. It shows up in our giving. It shows up in our volunteering. It shows up, you know, well, if there's, you know, well, I've got this going on this weekend and that going on then. And, okay, so if that's not going on and this not's going on and this not's going on, well, then we'll go to church. It's like it's the opposite of the way it ought to be, um, and and I'm not and I don't, it's not just about church attendance, but it, it's it's a mentality of God having first place preeminence in your life. It shows up in the way you sing. I guarantee you, there are some of you that sing louder at six or seven a.m. in your car on your commute to work than you do at ten thirty a.m. in worship, or in the shower at. 5 something a.m. So don't say, well, it's too early for me to sing. You know, it's just not Leonard Skinner or whatever you're listening to in your truck, okay? Or what? Or, uh, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, don't even try, Jason. <laughs> um, just let it go. Just let it go. Oh. Um, the attitude you have for worship, I mean, comes in parents. I remember talking to a parent, you know, well, we're not going to come because the kids didn't feel like it. Well, do they ever not feel like going to school? Well, yeah, there's lots of times they don't feel like, well, there's kind of a law and I want them to get an education, so I'll make them come to school anyway. Well, the question then is whose design is more important? The way that the government says school ought to be set up or what God says the way you ought to rear your children? I mean, you got to pick which is more important in this. And there's an old hymn. And I don't know if it's our hymn or not. Give of your best to the master, it says. Give of the strength of your youth. Throw your soul's fresh glowing odor into the battle for truth. Jesus has set the example. Dauntless was he, young and brave. Give him your loyal devotion. Give him the best that you have. And years ago, the old preachers would say, you know, you might not need to be the best and the smartest, but your best ought to be ever what you give to the Lord. And, you know, we might not have the fanciest building with the most, you know, ornate everything, but it ought to be our best. And the way, I mean, the, we're doing this for the Lord. There ought to be a spirit of excellence about that. You know, and the refrain of that old hymn would say, Give of your best to the master. Give of the strength to your youth. Clad in salvation's full armory. Join in the battle for truth. 
And then it ended with this is what I wanted to share. Give of your best to the master. Not else is worthy his love. It's the response to his love that demands the worship. Not else is worthy his love. He gave himself for your ransom. Gave up his glory above. Laid down his life without murmur. You from sin's ruin to save. Give him your heart's adoration. Give him the best that you have. He deserves our best because he gave his best. So, how have you loved us? They asked God. How have you loved us? He chose us in him. He set salvation upon us. He's given us this. And how have we responded? With terrible, convenient, casual, lackadaisical worship. And so these are these, mo- these first two disputations, these first two arguments. And I really want us to think upon these things as we take of the Lord's table. That God's unmerited love, his love is amazing. And that love should, proper worship should just flow out of that. I mean, he's talked a few times here about how he doesn't have pleasure in these type of offerings because he is so great. I mean, seeing God and his holiness and his greatness and his majesty should, I mean, this is a huge thing. There's a fear element that, that, that should factor in to how we worship God, that there's an awe of him in how we worship him, that we're not, when we realize who he is, in response to his love, in response to his greatness, we're not just going to go through the motions. We're not just going to be keeping up appearances. We're not just going to be complacent because it's kind of like when you're rolling on a, on, a, on a slant and you're rolling a ball up and down it. If it's not going up, it's going back. If you're not growing as a Christian, if you're just kind of like, hey, I'm okay, I'm just going to, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in the, uh, you know, just in a holding pattern here. If you're not growing, if you're not, you're, 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 you're regressing. You're either growing as a Christian or you're regressing as a Christian. I remember one time I went to this wrestling camp and the guy, um, the, the, the guy was like saying, hey, if you're not learning, you're losing. If you're not learning something new, you're losing. If you're not growing and advancing, you're, you're, you're regressing. You're going behind. And that's really, so don't, don't come into 2019 as a Christian thinking, you know, hey, I'm just going to keep up what I was doing. And no, no, no. We need to keep advancing for God's glory. If not, we're going to be getting complacent. And when we get complacent, we're going to be just like these Israelites here that Malachi is addressing, that they just got so complacent. And when the complacency came, they got corrupt. Oh, okay, we'll just give this to God. Oh, yeah, there's that one sheep that, you know, lost a leg, stepped in a hole, wolf got it, and I barely got it away. Yeah, they'll use that one for the sacrifice, yeah. Um, that'll be fine. Um, the runt there, put that one up. You know, oh, you, oh that, th- those those vegetables are going to be bad in a day. You, use those for the offering. Um, we can get that type of an attitude. Um, so Israel's casual and careless worship is a reminder to us of how easy religion can just become routine. It can just become empty. It's not just religious things. It's anything. It's your marriage. It's your family. It's your job. Anything can, uh, we just become careless about it. Um, I encourage you to maybe this afternoon, um, Matthew West has a great song. Uh, I don't want to go through the motions. Um, I don't want to go one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me. That's a great prayer that I think really fits this first couple 
arguments that uh, Malachi has. That it might hurt, it's not safe, but I think I've got to make a change. I don't care if I break. At least I'll be feeling something. Because just okay is not enough. Help me fight through the nothingness of life. I don't want to go through the motions. I don't go, I want to go one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me. Life's not worth living if there's not passion. If you're not going somewhere. So I want to encourage you, based on these two first arguments of Malachi, don't let your relationship with God be complacent. Get some passion in there. And maybe pray that prayer. It might hurt. I mean, some of the things God points out is like, whoa, you know, how I'm giving to the Lord, my attitude towards worship. On this. this is hurtful stuff here. But he affirms us. It's in his response to his love that's for us. And here's the thing. What did Jacob have over Esau? Nothing. I mean, why did God love Israel instead of the, I mean, all the other dudes in, in, in Ur? Why did he pick Abraham? What was so special about him? Nothing. Well, what's so special about you that God saved you? What's so special about me? Nothing. That's what's called grace. We don't deserve it. He set his affection on us and we respond with love to him, our best to him, passion worship to him because he's such an incredible God. Let's think upon this as we are reminded of his love for us in the Lord's table. Let's pray.